Hey listeners, it's your host, Asia. You're about to hear my chat with Howard Pollock about a piece that most of us already love, Ravel's Bolero, um, which, as you'll find out, is about a lot more than just repetition, though it is about repetition. And my theory on that is that it's because there's a rumor that Ravel wrote the piece in Houston near this place called the Meekum Fountain. It's a roundabout. And I think he just kept going around and around the darn thing while he was writing. I'm pretty sure that's fact. For more great facts about classical music, make sure to subscribe to and rate us and review us on iTunes. Okay, enjoy the episode. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So, every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know. And then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Howard Pollock, who is a professor of musicology at the University of Houston's Moore School of Music. Howard has written numerous articles and six books about various areas of American music, for which he's won many awards, including his books on Aaron Copland and George Gershwin, and most recently his work on Mark Blitzstein. He's lectured all over the world, He's appeared in uh, documentaries. He's been on Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and Fresh Air. And so, of course, he now has to be on the Classical Classroom. Howard, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure, Daisha. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? I'm going to be talking about orchestration. Okay. And my first question for you is, do you know the difference between instrumentation and orchestration? Not a clue. Okay. Well, instrumentation are the uh, uh, refers to the instruments that a composer uses, and orchestration refers to the way in which they use instruments. Okay. Okay. So they're both important factors in all music that uses instruments, right? Yeah. And I thought, as an example, we would look at Ravel's Bolero. Okay. Now, this is a very familiar piece to many people. Yeah. But you may, we'll be listening to it maybe more closely than you've listened to it before. Yeah, it's easy not to listen to closely because it's so <laughs> repetitive. Exactly. It's sort of hypnotic. And a lot of music lovers, I would say, look down a little bit on this piece because of its popularity and simplicity, but yeah. it shows still the work of a master. This is Maurice Ravel. Uh-huh. Do you know about Ravel? I don't. I was going to ask you, like, when did he live? Who are his contemporaries? And what like, what else did he do? Because when people think Ravel, they think Ravel's Bolero. Like, right. Well, yeah. Ravel lived from 1875 to 1937. Okay. He was a French composer. Oh. So he was a contemporary of Claude Debussy and Eric Satie. And really one of the great masters of his period. Mm-hmm. He might be compared in art to the Impressionist painters or the post-Impressionist painters. Okay. So he lived in that era and wrote many, actually everything he wrote is pretty much in the repertoire, which is something you can't say about 
many composers. Right, yeah. He really is very, very appealing. His music has enormous technical finish mm -hmm. and polish. So he's admired just for his technique and just the beauty of, of the sound of his music. His piano writing is beautiful. He wrote ballets. He wrote uh, many piano pieces and is really one of the masters of the classical repertoire. When we say repertoire, you know, we talk about that on the program a lot. We kind of bandy that word about, but from my understanding, repertoire just means sort of what is typically played by people who are in the classical music world. It's like, it's it's kind of the, the given Right, of... right. Musicians sometimes refer to the standard repertoire. Okay. Because the repertoire itself can mean, I guess, everything. Right. But the standard repertoire, those pieces that are played quite a lot. So Ravel is like all of his stuff. He's very well represented in okay. the repertoire for sure. Well, let's look at the instrumentation or the scoring of this piece. Okay. And it's written for orchestra. Not every orchestral piece has the same instruments in it. So we want to know, in this case, what instruments he's using. Yeah. So many of these instruments are going to be familiar to you, probably most of them, but let's run through them. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Okay. And you also might know that certain instruments come in families. Mm -hmm. The smaller the version, the higher the sound, and the bigger the instrument, the lower the sound. Mm -hmm. So to take our initial example, piccolo and flute. You know what a flute is, correct? Sure. And a piccolo is a shorter flute. And a mini flute. It's a mini flute. Yeah. Right. And it has a higher sound. So let's go through this scoring. He uses one piccolo. He has two flutes. Now he has two oboes. You know what those are. Yeah. And an unusual instrument that actually was more popular in the Baroque that he sort of revived. And that's a piece called the oboe d'amore which in Italian translates to the oboe of love. The oboe, <laughs> the oboe of love. The oboe of love. <laughs> and, you know, in, in choosing these instruments, we might also wonder why these particular instruments, because there are some novelties about the score that we don't find in a lot of other music, and you might wonder why. Well, bolero is a Spanish dance, and it's he's trying to evoke a Spanish dance okay. in the world of Spain. So maybe some of these choices, like the oboe d'amore, had a s more sultry. It's a little bit lower. It's more like if the oboe is a soprano, yeah. then the oboe d'amore would be like a mezzo-soprano. Does it look different? Yeah, it's a little the, bit. It's, it's, a li it's bigger. It's bigger. Okay. okay. And then the, the, a still bigger oboe is the English horn. Oh. And he uses the English horn as well. Okay. Okay. And then let's move on to the clarinets. He uses two clarinets. One, a standard clarinet, which is the clarinet in B-flat. And let's not worry about the terminology there. Yeah. But it's the standard clarinet. Yeah. And then the other clarinet he uses is a soprano clarinet, yeah. which is a higher-pitched clarinet. And then he also uses the bass clarinet, which is a lower clarinet. That's pretty standard in a lot of orchestral music. You find these three clarinets. Now, here's a real novelty, and that is he uses saxophones. Yeah, I yeah. noticed that. Yeah. I was watching a video of a performance of this yesterday, and I was like, saxophone? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The <laughs> French, because it doesn't sound like sax. Yeah, the French, well, uh, sa classical saxophonists will play the saxophone differently than jazz saxophonists play yeah. the instrument. So they have a different approach, a different sound. But it's interesting, you know, the, the French composers of this period and even later times had a, a predilection for using the saxophone. Hmm. Um, so we do find it, and as 
did um, Russian composers and American composers. So you do find the saxophone popping up in orchestral repertoire. But here it's on very pr- it's very prominently displayed, as we're going to see, okay? Yeah. But this is a real novelty. On top of the novelty of using the saxophone, he's using a sopranino saxophone. Now, you more familiar is a soprano saxophone, mm-hmm. an alto saxophone, right. a tenor saxophone, and a baritone saxophone. Those are the four more standard saxophones. But the sopranino means a very, very high saxophone. That's the like the very high voiced mm-hmm. saxophone. So he's using one of those. He's using a tenor saxophone. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Got okay. It. Now he's also using two bassoons. Okay. You know what those are. Sure. Right? And a contrabassoon, which is the big bassoon. Right. Which is sort of like the tuba of the woodwind instrument. <laughs> usually they're just like the tuba underneath everything that's going on. Okay. They're not usually highlighted that much. So those are what we would call our woodwind instruments. And now we're going to move on to our brass instruments. No big surprises here. We have four French horns. We have four trumpets. We have three trombones. And we have a tuba, okay? And let's move on to our percussion instruments. Oh, those poor percussionists. Why are they poor? Because, uh, you know, as, as we'll hear in the piece, I mean, they just play the same thing over and over for bar after bar after bar. <laughs> but, you know, at least they're playing something. You know, sometimes the percussionists just stand there waiting waiting around to do their big cymbal crash right. <laughs> at the uh, climax of a piece. So. They just stand back there and smoke cigarettes until, until they get to the crash part. Oh, Right. Or if, if they're in the pit at the opera, they could read a magazine. Nobody yeah. will see them, you know. <laughs> but on stage, no, they're not smoking cigarettes or reading anything. They're trying to look attentive at any rate. But the the percussion instruments we have in this piece are the timpani, uh-huh. which are also called the kettle drums, and they actually produce a pitch. You know, there are some percussion instruments that produce a pitch and some that don't. So that actually produces a pitch. And then there are two snare drums, you know what those are, of course, mm-hmm. and cymbals. Yes. And then an instrument called the tam-tam, or better known as the gong. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then a big bass drum. Okay. Okay. And then we have our string instruments, which are the violins, the violas, the cellos, and the double basses. And those usually are not specified in terms of numbers because it's just as many strings as the orchestra happens to have on okay, hand. Okay, so right? Ravel doesn't, doesn't specify. Right. Just says, right. okay. Very few composers specify the actual numbers of, of strings because they're en masse, aren't they? Oh, There's a whole yeah. bunch of violins and a whole bunch of violas. Okay. And finally, last but not least, there's a harp. Mm-hmm. You know what the harp is. And here's an instrument that may be the most unfamiliar to you, and that's the celesta. Yeah. Do you know what the celesta is? I do only because we did uh, an episode on the Nutcracker. Aha. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Nutcracker, should we listen to uh, a little bit of a celesta as found in the Nutcracker? We should. But before we do that, do you know it's a keyboard instrument? Yes, and that was what I was fascinated by. I, I thought it was just somebody playing bells really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> 
it's it a key. <laughs> it has a bell-like sound because there are little pieces of metal being struck, right? Yeah. Like a glockenspiel, but it's actually played by the keyboard. And it was a relatively new instrument at this time. It yeah. was only invented in the late 19th century. So for Ravel to use this instrument as, in a way, the saxophone, but even more so, was sort of like a composer today using a synthesizer. It was a pretty contemporary, newly devised instrument. Right. But when let's listen to what Tchaikovsky does with it in his ballet, The Nutcracker Suite. And this is the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. The best part. See, all that time, I was just imagining a whole bunch of bell players <laughs> just, you know, playing their little minds out. Yeah. Well, okay, so that's the instrumentation. Okay. And now we're going to turn our attention to orchestration okay. by listening to this whole piece. It's a 15-minute piece. I hope we have time for that. Yeah. Okay, now, one other thing before we start is to say this is a very repetitive piece, as you said. And there are three main elements in this piece. One is this sort of ongoing rhythm that is in three. We just hear one, two, three, one, two, three, played by some instruments or other, okay? And then there is the bol- the distinctive bolero rhythm itself, which is yum, da-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, bum-bum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, bum. Uh-huh. And that's also going to be played by certain instruments. And then... Third, the third element in this three-layered composition Mm -hmm. is the melody itself. So those three elements continue throughout this whole piece, Mm -hmm. and you're going to hear them all the time. But we're going to focus, for our pedagogical purposes, we're going to focus mostly on the melody. Okay. Before you go on, you said something there that I had a question about. Now, the piece is called Bolero, and you just referred to a Bolero rhythm. Is, Is that what the title refers to? That's right. Dances usually have distinctive rhythms, like a polka or a waltz. Yeah, they'll have distinctive rhythms, and the bolero has this distinctive rhythm of yum, ba da da dum, ba da da dum, bum. Okay. Or with a triplet, what we call a triplet in music, it's actually similar to the Polish polonaise. Mm-hmm. Has a similar uh, rhythm, and Chopin, who's a Polish composer, wrote a bolero. Oh, cool. One other thing to mention, just talking about historical things, is that you know that Ravel was in Houston giving lectures for the Rice Institute in 1928. I did not know that. And that was the same year that he composed Bolero. It was towards the end of his compositional career. And so he was here in the spring of 1928, Mm -hmm. and Bolero was premiered in November of 1928. So So he may have written it. Yeah, he may have been working on Bolero when he was in Houston. That's so cool. Staying at the Rice Hotel, I believe. Yeah. Isn't that something? That's really cool. Yeah. So let's get back to this piece. And initially what we hear is, do you remember the three elements? Uh, one, two, three. One, two, three. Okay. Uh, and no, then, no. yeah, one, two, three, <laughs> and then bolero rhythm. Okay. And then melody. And the melody. Okay. okay. Got it. So the one, two, three initially is played by the strings plucking, what yeah. we call pizzicato. Uh Okay, so we're going to hear that kind of faintly. And then we're also going to hear the snare drum playing the bolero rhythm. Mm -hmm. Bum, bum. And then after a little bit of an introduction of that, we get the flute by itself coming in and playing the melody. Okay. 
you can hear three elements there, right? Yes. The pizzicato strings and the snare drum and our beautiful flute playing mm -hmm. the melody. You have to listen really carefully. You for do. That. It's so soft. And Ravel, part of the skill or the art of orchestration is is how one writes for instruments too, right? Mm -hmm. So in this case, we find the flute in its lower register. Yeah. And you know, a flute can sound very high. It can sound like a bird. Right. You know, in its high register. But here we have the flute in its low register. So that gives a kind of a sultry, warm, sensuous quality that I guess fits in what, uh, with what Ravel's intention is mm -hmm. with this Spanish piece. You know, the Spanish piece is seen by a Frenchman at any rate, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, did you get that? I got it. I got okay, it. now okay. we're going to go right on because this is simple. Yeah. The whole premise of this piece is that it begins very small, very softly. Mm -hmm. And with only a few instruments playing. Remember, you're looking at a big orchestra if you were there in yeah. live performance, but you only hear a few instruments. So we begin very modestly, don't we? And we're going to emerge at the very end with like everyone in the orchestra playing at full tilt. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea. That's kind of the narrative of the piece. Mm. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're on our way. Now, as we listen to this next segment, the... Bolero rhythm is played not only by the snare drum, but the flute is accompanying the snare drum together. Really? Yeah, it's easy to hear. But in this instance, I want you to hear that to make the point that as he's evolving, not only in developing this piece, not only is the melody changing, the instrument for the melody changing, but the accompaniment, the accompanimental colors are changing too. So whereas we just had a snare drum... We have a snare drum and flute. Okay. And that's the second flute. That's the partner of the flute who just played the melody okay. in the orchestra. But the melody itself is played by our B-flat clarinet, by our standard clarinet. And so let's take it away. And so we get a little bit of a richer texture right away. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. It gives the percussion a totally different sort of feel. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that's our, our next segment. Okay. Now, we're about to start another segment, and again, I want to bring attention to an accompanimental figure okay. once more, just so you can hear how things are kind of like changing. Mm -hmm. And I loved what you said about the snare drum and flute together make a different sound. And yeah. this is the art of orchestration. It's the art of combining instruments to make all sorts of different sounds. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, the colors of a, of a painter, the palette, and how the the painter will add different colors to make different colors. Yeah. There's, there's, it's endless, the endless combinations of instruments. And that's one of the joys of especially the orchestra because there's such rich potential with all these instruments at your disposal to make all sorts of sounds. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, we're going to hear the melody picked up by the bassoon, and that's going to be easy enough for us to hear. But one accompanimental difference now to listen for is going to our one, two, three motive that had been played by the plucking strings right mm -hmm. but now in addition to the plucking strings we're going to hear the harp okay. and that's going to give it as you can imagine this little glow right yeah 
having the harp. So I want you to listen for the harp in the accompaniment, and then we'll listen to the bassoon continue with the melody. Okay. Can you hear the harp? I do. The harp with the bassoon now playing the melody. That is so cool. This sounds Middle Eastern to me. Like, uh, does it? Uh, like, I never, I never thought Spanish. Like, not knowing anything about the piece, sounds well. Like- you know. There were the Moors in Spain for many, many years, weren't there? Yeah. You like the bassoon? Love it. And were you able to hear the harp there? Oh, yeah. So it adds to the excitement that all these instruments are beginning to come in. Uh So you see this piece isn't as repetitive as it might appear. No. The material is repetitive, but the colors are constantly changing. Uh We have a long way to go. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So then next we're going to hear the soprano clarinet play the same melody. That's the high clarinet. We just heard the low bassoon. Let's just go right into that and hear the high clarinet. Okay. Okay. You know, I neglected to say something. Who's performing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's really one of the most important things. Who is performing? It's the, it's the Montreal Symphony Orchestra conducted okay. by Charles Dutrois. Oh, okay. okay. And Charles Dutrois is one of my favorite conductors, especially in this repertoire. Why do you, why do you like his... Oh, I just think he's great. Okay. I don't... I mean, that's, that's a whole other show. Oh, You're okay. going to have to have me on talking <laughs> about conductors. All right. You know? But we also have to appreciate the individual playing of all these musicians in that particular orchestra. Mm-hmm. And that is actually part of the whole art and, and skill of being, of appreciating classical music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like jazz musicians, when they listen to a combo, they're also listening to the individual skills of the orchestra player, right. of so the uh, musicians. The it's, yeah. yeah. So here we're really, this is a distinctive, this is a person playing the soprano clarinet and the flute. These right. are individuals. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on. All and right. we're about to hear, and I know you're looking forward to this because we're about to hear the oboe of love. I do. I want to hear the oboe Yeah, of the love. oboe d'amore. <laughs> Did you like that? That's great. Does that put you in an amorous mood? It does. Good. Yeah. Well, I think that's his intention. (laughs) I think that's his intention. Good job, Ravel. Absolutely. Now we come to something a little trickier. Ready for this? We're going to have, so far we've had our melody played by single instruments, soloists. Now he's going to start to combine instruments. So in this instance, and you could see things are getting a little bit richer in their texture, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now we're going to have the trumpet. It's a muted trumpet with a flute. Okay. Now, in addition to wanting this particular sonority, they're playing um, the same melody together. 
he's really calibrating things by having the trumpet play in the score, he says, mezzo piano, mm-hmm. which is kind of moderately soft. But he has the flute, which is actually a, an octave higher, play pianissimo, very, very, very soft. Mm. So what does he want the sound to be like? He really wants it more like a trumpet sound with just this afterglow of the flute. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to really work a little bit to hear that glow mm-hmm. of the sound. But, you know, it's like a painter taking two colors, like blue and green, mm-hmm. um, or blue, I should say blue and yellow, Yeah, two primary colors, and then deciding, I'm not going to mix them equally. I'm going to have mostly right. blue with a dab of yellow. He wants a particular shade. A, exactly. He wants a particular shade. So we're going to listen for this particular unique shade mm-hmm. of color for this melody that's coming up. So... A question: Did did Ravel play with instruments to to test out sounds? Did he just understand instruments that well that he was able to, you know, sit down in front of a page and go, "I would like this admixture of instruments to happen"? How did he do it? Well, that's a great question because that is the art of orchestration. Okay. Now, Ravel was mostly a pianist. He was a a wonderful pianist, mm. but he was also a brilliant orchestrator because he knew this what the orchestra could produce. He was one of the most skilled orca- orchestrators, actually, in the whole history of music. Okay. So this was one of his real great strengths. Yeah. Now, some composers like Gustav Mahler or Leonard Bernstein were also professional conductors, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of added experience being on the podium conducting orchestras that most composers don't have. Most composers learn the art of orchestration through studying scores, going to concerts, studying the potential of the instruments rather than actually mastering the instruments themselves. Okay. Okay? Okay. So anyway, are we ready to... Yeah. So this is the muted trumpet with that little glowing flute accompanying him on this ver- on this continuation of our bolero melody Can you hear the flute with the trumpet? Yeah. I never would have guessed that that's what that sound was though. Let's listen some more. Now, of course, if you heard this in live performance, uh-huh. you'd see the flute playing and the trumpet playing at the same time. Right. So you'd have that added visual stimulation of knowing that was going on. Sure. Plus, in a live in a live theater, you're always going to hear things more vividly than you do over a recording. Now, I noticed that the the shade of the color is changing just just a little bit as we go through each section, but it's all kind of in the same color family. I don't know how else to say it. Is that part of what Ravel is doing here? He's building very, very slowly so that you're sort of, like he's mixing all of these different instruments and you're coming out at a different place than you've, you've entered. 
That's a great observation. He's been using really mostly woodwind instruments, hasn't he? Yeah. And this is like the introduction of a brass, but it's it's softened with the use of the double doubling of the flute mm -hmm. and then using a mute as well. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to hear some further changes and okay. sounds okay. as we progress. Okay, so let's let's move on and we're going to now hear this played by our tenor saxophone. Okay. Ready for that? Yeah. Do you notice that the trumpet is playing the bolero rhythm? It sure is. Okay, let's move on. We're going to hear now the sopranino, that very high saxophone, uh -huh. pick up the melody. Now our one, two, three sound is getting richer because the oboes are coming in and playing that at a higher, mm -hmm. higher register. And so we are having against this high instrument playing the melody, we have also a richer one, two, three. Towards the end of this melody, the melody goes so low that the sopranino saxophone can't play it. So the tenor saxophone plays a soprano saxophone to complete the melody. Okay. Okay, now we're we're about to hear the melody scored in in a way that is one of my favorite sections of this whole piece. Okay. Because we have something very interesting happen. He has the melody played by solo, one French horn player, but doubled with piccolo flute, and celesta. Hmm. Now, we had heard two instruments together play the melody. We'd heard the muted trumpet and the flute play together. But now hmm. we have four instruments, so it's getting richer. Yeah. And again, he's calibrating things by using dynamics, having the French horn player play it at a moderately loud marking, but the flute and piccolo playing it at a very, very soft level and the celesta playing it also very softly. Okay. Not that the celesta can make that much noise and sound anyway, but um, it's going to take a little work on your part to listen to hear all four of those instruments, but you'll see that it's a, just a magical instrument that's created by these four instruments. Okay. So let's listen to that. It almost sounds like a calliope to me, uh -huh. or something like that. Yeah. I wonder if he was thinking of like street organ, street organ music in Spain. It sounds like music you'd hear at a at a fair. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. a hurdy gurdy or yeah, something. Yeah. I think 
it's interesting that he decided to use these sort of what I'm guessing at the time was still like traditional orchestral instruments and mix them in different ways instead of just bringing in something like a hurdy-gurdy. Right, exactly. And composers often do that. You know, one instrument that he doesn't use that you might think he might have used for this Spanish quality are the castanets. Yeah, where are the castanets? Yeah, where are they? (laughs) He had his reasons, I'm sure. But uh, my guess about why he decided not to use them is as good as yours. Well, (laughs) should we move on? Yeah, let's. And we're going to go straight on because for the next segment... You're going to tell me who's playing the melody, okay? Okay, I'm listening so closely. Trombone. Bullseye. Did you hear the glissando, the slides? Yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah, that's what tipped me off. That's very unique. Yeah. You know what I just realized while I was, I'm, I'm listening to this piece build. I'm wondering, you know, this is such a unique piece, like, like where does it come from? Where did, he, where did Ravel get his inspiration from? And I realized it kind of reminds me of the Rite of Spring and the way that the Rite of Spring starts so subtly, very subtly. And then it just like, all of a sudden, you know, like there's this fevered pitch in the middle where everybody is joining in. And that's kind of what this sounds like. Well, that's a a great observation. The Rite of Spring had been written about 15 years earlier and was also a ballet score, was also a dance score, as yeah. this is. And of course, music was never the same after the Rite of Spring. Yeah. Stravinsky and Ravel were very good friends. They knew each other quite well. You know, they were both living in Paris during these years. Um, they both admired each other enormously. And so that's just a great observation, Daisha. Yes. Good for you. Or one clay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on. And, and now, going ahead, we're going to have something very special happen okay. because the violins are going to come in with the melody. Uh-huh. Now, you're going to hear a completely different sound because the violins have a certain warmth yeah. and singing quality that the winds and brass instruments don't have, right? Uh-huh. So it's going to give a whole new dimension They're going to be playing it with the winds, so you're still going to hear a lot of winds playing this melody, but now it's going to be richer because of the addition of the first, of the, um, of the violins, of the first violins. Can you hear the violins? Yeah, I hear them. I hear them. And of course, if you were in a live performance, uh-huh. it would be very effective too because you'd have all those violins suddenly enter with the melody. Yeah. That would just add to the excitement. Okay, and at this point, we're going to have the melody continue more or less as it's been continuing. But now what I want you to do 
is listen kind of key into the one, two, three motive. Okay. Because now that's being played by the trombones and the tuba. The tuba has finally arrived into our story. And you'll, yeah, the tubas have kind of been waiting there patiently, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that gives a certain bottom and a certain weight to this piece that's very, very special. So that's an additional coloristic element that we, we encounter just at this point in the, in the piece. Now listen for it. Can you hear the tuba? There he is. There he is. Boom. Like Ravel is playing musical chairs with the the instruments. It's like he'll he'll you know get them going in in one section and then they sort of peel off and join the other section. That's but they, it keeps on getting bigger and bigger all the time. Now listen yeah. to it now. With three trumpets added. Now it's beginning harder to hear the individual instruments as he's adding, having essentially the whole orchestra play, but right. it's just the bigness of the color and the sound that's coming through. It's yeah. like the sum is, is bigger than the individual parts. It's become very bombastic. Now as he heads home, we're yeah. gonna hear, he's been in the same key this entire time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what that means, but it means that there hasn't been a lot of harmonic movement. Yeah, yeah. And just towards the end, he's going to change key just for an extra added thrill before we get home, because we're really in the home stretch. Yeah. We're going to take this piece home, and we're going to hear the change of key, which I'll point out to you just so you can appreciate that. Mm -hmm. you, you don't need to have a knowledge of music theory to appreciate that, because you get it's just an extra added thrill that he throws in comes back to the key, and when he comes back to the key for this big end, we have the trombones, we have everyone playing it, as I said, at full tilt, but the trombones have a sort of braying glissando that just mm -hmm. sort of adds to the excitement. You'll hear the trombones with their braying glissando and the cymbals and gong added to the whole mix yeah. just to give us a big ending. So I think we should just listen to this right through to the end. How's that? Let's do it. Okay. Now listen, we get a change there, just kind of signaling to us that we're approaching the end of the piece. And to give it an extra Spanish flavor, because the yeah. harmonies are so evocative of Spain. Yeah. And back home. Hear the braying? I hear it. Wow, what a great piece. <laughs> See, wow. it's, a, it's a piece that's easy to take for granted. Yeah, yeah, it when, really is. Yeah, but when you sit down and, and listen to all that's going into this piece, it's really quite impressive. Was it groundbreaking at its time? I mean, I know you said that it was kind of derided. 
or or is now because it's just such a popular piece and and like a lot of popular music is often derided amongst people who are experts, you know. Well, I would say that it's retained its huge popularity all these years. It's probably Ravel's most famous piece. Yeah. And what I was alluding to before is um, critics and connoisseurs, for good reason, think of this as probably lesser Ravel mm, okay. because it doesn't have the the depth and the complexity of uh, some of his more ambitious pieces. I see. And everyone's uh, capable of writing something of a potboiler, <laughs> so uh, this might fall into that category. But as potboilers go, it's it's a very skilled one, I think. I think it's great. I think it's a, such a great potential entrance for people to classical music because you get to hear you get to hear so many things. You get to hear so many different instruments and so many different instruments highlighted. Well, and, that was that was my hope yeah. in in bringing this piece to your attention. And now that you and your Listeners have experienced this. I hope you go on to listen to Daphnis and Chloe by Ravel or his piano concertos or uh, or some of his uh, Gaspard de la Nuit, his great piece for the piano. So um, there's lots of Ravel to be, to be explored. And when you listen to the orchestral Ravel, I hope that you'll give the orchestration a little bit of attention now that you've had this this primer in Ravel's orchestration. Well, I will now that I know that Ravel was so sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> Howard, thank you so much for being on the show and bringing this piece in. This was so cool. It's been my pleasure. So much fun. Everybody, that about does it for this episode. For more Classical Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom, or you can go to soundcloud.com backslash classicalclassroom to see an exhaustive list of everything we've ever done and more. Yeah, there's other stuff on there too. Uh, You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, or you can now listen to us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Treblecliff Holslander for making us sound good, to program director Sinjin Flynn for his steadfast guidance and for scaling back the number of times he played Xanadu in his office this week, (laughs) (laughs) to Howard Pollack for being on the show, to me for saying words, and to you, dear listeners, for listening. We'll catch you next time.